Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Please turn with me in for, to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11 is our text again this morning, and it will be our text next Sunday as well. We are working through this um, important section on the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, in um, some measure of detail. I think this is important. Um, we don't really come across texts like this elsewhere in the New Testament in the detail that Paul unpacks them in chapter 10 and chapter 11. So this is our chance, this is our opportunity, and we're going to take advantage of it. So I just want to read the verses to uh, set them before us, and then we will um, uh, look at what the Lord has for us, specifically in verses 23 to 26. Paul says this, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear the divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So he does not eat, so, excuse me, for he who eats and drinks, and, uh, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come." As we come to our study of this text again this morning, uh, Paul is attempting to set straight in their midst what had become bent. And what's bent, among other things, is their particular conduct in and around the Lord's table. Um, The heart of the problem is laid out to us in verses 17 to 22, and we looked at that last week, where Paul issues them this stinging It's a really stinging rebuke here in these verses for carrying over all the the worldly socioeconomic distinctions and divisions between the well-off and the less privileged and and carrying that into their celebration of the Lord's table. Their conduct was so appalling uh, and so contrary to God's purposes for for that ordinance, for this, this ordinance, that Paul goes so far as to tell them, Uh, in verse 17, that their church gatherings are actually more hurtful than helpful. He says, uh, in giving this, I don't praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. That That is just a stinging rebuke 
by Paul. Instead of being built up when they come together, it was tearing the church down. Instead of encouraging each other, they were ending up discouraging each other. And instead of producing a net benefit, their gathering on the Lord's Day was actually a net loss. And so something needed to change, and it needed to change immediately. And we pointed out that the Lord's table was likely being celebrated as part of a full communal meal, likely at the, at the tail end of that meal. The church would meet together and enjoy this meal. It's spoken of elsewhere in the New Testament as a love feast or the breaking of bread. And most likely what was going on, we said, is the wealthier members of the congregation who would have been supplying the food for such a church-wide meal were actually ignoring the challenges of their less fortunate brothers and sisters in the church and uh, those who were poor, for instance, and those who were not free at all but were slaves. And uh, what was happening was these wealthier members were gathering in their own cliques, and they were eating and drinking to their heart's content, to their fullest. And by the time their poor brethren would show up and arrive at the meal, there was little to no food left. There was nothing left. And he says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. These well-to-do were, were literally charging ahead, indifferent to the needs of the others in the church body, and, um, and they were basically ignoring their participation in the Lord's table. There was no sharing. There was no common meal. The hungry poor, we said, were being... Um, basically ignored, and the rich were just as fat and happy as their non-Christian contemporaries. And so Paul says, whatever this is, verse 20, it's not the Lord's Supper. This is not the Lord's Supper. It's no surprise then that the seeds of division that had been, were being sown among them, had been sown among them, and were starting to germinate, and those seeds were starting to choke out the good fruit that God would seek to bring forth in their midst. And Paul rebukes them for it in the strongest possible language at the end there in verse 22. He says that they were despising the church of God. They were literally showing contempt for their less fortunate brothers and sisters. He goes on to say that they are shaming or literally humiliating those in the church who had nothing. They were dragging all the superficial social distinctions, those carnal distinctions between wealthy and less fortunate, between rich and poor, into God's household, the church, where Paul says, in Christ, we are one. And we saw that from Galatians chapter 3 and verses 27 and 28. And we learned then two weeks ago that, and, and even before that, when we were looking at the Lord's table, kind of tracing it through Scripture, we learned that the, one of the primary purposes of the Lord's table is to proclaim our unity, our union to Christ individually, and therefore our unity to one another in the church. But the Corinthians, though, had, were chipping away at the foundation of all of that by their, by their selfish treatment of their brothers and sisters in Christ, which prompts Paul then to revisit this more fatherly corrective tone. Make no mistake about it. His words in these verses are not um, kind. They're not nuanced. They're very direct, and they are very corrective in nature. He wants to ensure, just as he will go on to ensure, to say in chapters 12, 13, and 14, that all is being done decently and in order. So if verses 17 to 22 were Paul's rebuke for their conduct, then what we're going to look at this morning in 23 to 26 are Paul's reminder of what the Lord's table signifies. It reminds us, what is it that the Lord's table actually signifies? 
Um, and the challenge, I have to confess, the challenge in preaching through these verses this morning is I have the challenge of trying to shed fresh light on these verses because these are verses that are very familiar to us. They've been, if you've been a part of this church or any church, any Bible-teaching church for any length of time, um, you've heard these verses. They're, they're so familiar. Every month, or at least in our church, every month we distribute the bread and the cup at the end of the worship service, and every month we read these verses or some parallel account in the Gospels, and every month we partake of the elements and we bow our hearts in prayer and we, we sing a final song of response and, uh, and we wash and rinse and repeat you know, the next month and the next month and the next month. And, and so because they're so familiar, these verses are so uh, etched in our mind, and because our participation in the Lord's table can so easily be put on autopilot, um, we can be lulled into this false notion that uh, there's nothing new for us to learn here. Um, we've, we've plumbed its depths. That's what we think. I'm always telling our kids when they eat a bowl of ice cream and they're relentlessly scraping at the last little drops of chocolate sauce at the bottom over and over and over again, I always tell them, okay, you're done. You're done, all right? There's nothing left for you to eat. Thankfully, though, the Word of God is not like a bowl of ice cream, okay? Scripture says God's wisdom is unsearchable. God's wisdom is unfathomable, Romans 11 tells us. No matter how much you dig down into the Word of God, you will never plumb its depths, because God is infinite, and we can never fully wrap our hearts and minds around him. And that is absolutely the case when it comes to our understanding of the Lord's table. There is so much more here for us to learn and to understand about what Christ has done for us through his death and resurrection, and how that's brought forward to us in the present through the bread and the cup that we share together and even as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, how that builds our expectation and, and anticipation for the future as we look ahead to, to glory. And so that's kind of how I want to outline our study again this morning. I want, but I want to do that focusing particular attention on the past and the present dynamics of the Lord's table. Um, you know, what's ha what happens when the church partakes of the Lord's table? Um, and more specifically, how does that work? And, um, and why is it important? And what are some of the practical implications of it? We'll, we'll kind of cover all of that this morning. So, um, so the first point in our outline this morning is this. The Lord's table retells our Savior's work at the cross in the past. We need to understand, and again, we've talked about this, that the Lord's table retells, not reenacts, but retells our Savior's work at the cross in the past. Having rebuked them in verses 17 to 22 for their conduct around the Lord's table and in those preceding verses, Paul pivots now in verses 23 to 26 to remind us what the Lord's Supper signifies. What, is it, what does it mean? And one of, the most, one of the important things that the Lord's table does is it heralds that Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners. Look at verse 23. He says, For I, deliver, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
Now, we've already traced the development of the Lord's table through the scriptures uh, all the way back to from the Passover meal um, and, uh, and all the Exodus event and all that took place there. Um, and we're, so we're not going to revisit all that this morning. But the point Paul makes here is that the ordinance itself is, it serves as an ongoing remembrance, a continual memorial of Christ's death in the place of sinners at the cross. These terms in verse seven, uh, excuse me, verse twenty-three of uh, receiving and delivering. These are technical terms that Paul employs here. They are technical terms that refer to the faithful transmission of religious instruction from one group to another, from one generation to another. He is reaffirming that the tradition about the Lord's table that they had heard from his lips. Remember, he pastored this church for um, eighteen months at least and made frequent visits back. You know, they had learned it from him. And he says, this tradition which you have learned from me, even if I learned it indirectly, its ultimate source comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I received it from the Lord, and I faithfully passed it ahead to you. He wants them to understand that the supper is not his thing, in its, uh, nor is it a man-made tradition, but rather has been established and instituted by Jesus himself and therefore is not uh, subject to alteration or amendment. And one of the primary reasons the Lord gave this ordinance to his disciples was to remind them and every generation after them, including us, was to remind us of his decisive work at the cross. It all began, he says, in the night Jesus was betrayed. When Jesus was establishing this meal to bring comfort and encouragement to God's people, what would be for centuries to come, human wickedness was at the same time engaging in betraying the Savior to his enemies. I think that in itself is worth pondering just for a moment. When Jesus was preparing to give his life for hopeless sinners like you and like me, rebellious sinners were simultaneously scheming behind his back to have him put to death. Such is the love of God for the lost. That God's own son would willingly lay down his life for those who are his sworn enemies, for those who deserve nothing but eternal conscious judgment in hell is truly astounding and truly worth remembering. I think of the words of Paul in Romans 5 and verses 6 to 8, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps, he says, for the good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus, knowing what was to come in the hours that would follow, being truly God, gave us the, the physical element of the broken bread at his table to represent and remind us of his body given for us. Jesus anticipated and interpreted his actions that were to take place the next day as the divine fulfillment of the words of Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 53, and we know those verses somewhat well in verse 12, in which he writes, Isaiah does, of the suffering servant, the Messiah, that he would pour himself out unto death, being numbered with the transgressors, and he himself would bear the sin of many. 
And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, Isaiah says, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We're to remember this when we come around the Lord's table. This is what we do. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. This cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus points out that the shedding of his blood was about to forever establish and ratify the new covenant that God had given. When he, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf, we became the righteousness of God in him. We looked at that just a couple of weeks ago on Sunday evening. This great exchange took place at the cross, and when that exchange was completed, Jesus threw open, as it were, the doorway to heaven. And through Christ's work at the cross, God has made provision for the forgiveness of our sins. And and through the cross, he has opened the door for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Colossians 2 says, God and his son, Jesus Christ, canceled out the certificate of debts consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and has, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're to remember that when we come to the Lord's table. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And every time we come around the Lord's table, it is a vivid proclamation of our Lord's once-for-all substitutionary death for sinners. Verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you herald the Lord's death until he comes. This term proclaim means to announce to shout, to herald. In the New Testament, it's always referring to the, almost, almost always, not exclusively, but almost always referring to the preaching of the gospel, the message. It always refers to an activity carried out toward people, never toward God. In word and symbol, at the Lord's Supper, the gospel is retold, and that word is important. It's not reenacted or re-sacrificed, It is retold. The gospel is retold before his people. This message that if you will humble yourself and that if you can throw yourself at the mercy of a holy God, knowing there's literally nothing you can do to earn his salvation, to earn his good graces, you can have your sins forgiven, past, present, and future. Look to Jesus, the Son of God and the Savior of the world, as we saw in our scripture reading this morning. Look to him and live. Matthew 11, come to me, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle, he says, and humble in heart. And then he quotes Jeremiah 6 and verse 16, which are God's words, and he says, you will find rest for your souls. I mean, no mere man could make that claim. No angel could make that claim that in coming to him, he could provide rest, eternal rest for their souls. This is a claim that is only 
can only be made by the one and true God. And so I say to you, come to him today. That, I mean, that is the message that these verses demand that we speak. Come to him. His, that invitation is still open for all who will come to him in faith. And every time we gather around the Lord's table, we retell our Savior's work on that old rugged cross, that work to purchase life eternal for our sin-sick souls. And so, so that is a wonderful part of the Lord's table. It, is a, it reminds us, it retells his glorious work at the cross. But this, there's more to the Lord's table than just retelling of Christ's work at the cross in the past. And I think too often in emphasizing the past dynamic of the Lord's table and its memorial component, we, we, uh, God's people end up treating it like a funeral procession for an absent loved one. When in reality, it is also a present communion with the risen Christ and by implication, his people. Now, in affirming this present dynamic of the Lord's table, um, we're not saying that the Lord's table is not a memorial. It is. It absolutely is. What we're saying is that the Lord's table is more than a memorial. It, is also a, it also has a vital role to play, secondly, and this is our second point in our outline, in renewing our hearts with fresh grace in the present. This isn't something we give a lot of thought to, when it comes to the Lord's table, but it's all right here in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Turn back with me to chapter 10 for a moment. We, again, when we went through these verses, Paul was kind of making a different argument, or his emphasis was on, on um, addressing an issue in their midst uh, that was kind of separate from the Lord's table itself, but he uses it to make a point. But, but there's something here that we need to understand if you look at uh, chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul asks these two rhetorical questions. He says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Paul asks these two important rhetorical questions here concerning the Lord's Supper, and the answer to both are meant to be a decisive yes. The way he asks these questions, they're, they're meant to be answered affirmatively. The cup of blessing which we bless at the Lord's table is a sharing in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is a sharing of, uh, in the body of Christ. And the, the operative words here in verse 16 are, is this term sharing? Or um, if you have ESV, it might be translated as participation. Um, if you have a, an older translation like the King James or the New King James, it might talk about this word communion. It might translate this word communion. So the question becomes, what's going on when we partake of the Lord's table? To answer that question, then, we need to understand what this term, um, and the Greek word is koinonia, and I, I only mention it because it's a word many of us are familiar with. We've heard that term what we need to understand what this term koinonia or fellowship or participation or communion means in its context. And the best way to do that, I think, is to see how that, that author, this is kind of word study 101, the best way to understand how they're using a term is to see how do they use it elsewhere. This, as the same author, maybe even in the same book. And lo and behold, we see Paul using the same term in a very similar way in the opening verses of chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1 in verse 9. 
in the salutation, this opening greeting, Paul says to the Corinthians, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship. This is the same word, koinonia, with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here, this term, fellowship, has a clear vertical dimension to it. It's obvious. It's not simply or primarily the experience of being together as believers that we're sharing. That's not what he's referring to. But the status of being in Christ and being shareholders in Christ's sonship by union with him. That's what our fellowship is. So the koinonia of God's son means a sharing, a communal participation in the sonship of Jesus Christ. And it's in the same sense that Paul says we have koinonia or fellowship with the body and the blood of Christ through the Lord's table. Paul is emphasizing what we commune with, not that we are communing. Does that make sense? It is what we are communing with, not the bare fact of us being together. It's not just that we're, we're meeting together and partaking of the Lord's table, even though that's absolutely true. And by implication, like we've said before, implies that we are one body. But that the koinonia that happens through the Lord's table establishes, he says here in verse 16, back in chapter 10, some kind of relationship with the blood and body of Christ. And, and the grammatical construction of this phrase supports understanding this term sharing to mean the common possession or enjoyment of something, which fits with Paul's argument perfectly because, as you remember, he was rebuking them for their idolatry and their participation in pagan feasts offered to false gods. And so what is it that the Corinthians that we who have placed our faith in Christ, what is it that we share in common and enjoy? And it is the blood of Christ, excuse me, the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. You say, Jeff, what exactly does that mean to share in the body and the blood of Christ? I mean, what does that mean? Well, if Paul's talking about a present sharing at the Lord's table, and that is what he's talking about, when we do this, this is what we're doing. If we're we're having a present, if there's a present sharing or participation with the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and Christ no longer is dead or dying, then our sharing at the Lord's table is the common possession and enjoyment that we have with the living and risen Christ now. So our communion must be with the present benefits purchased by Christ's broken and risen body, his shed blood and the new covenant ratified through it. And this is exactly why Paul makes that point. You remember, Paul tells the Corinthians, you can't share in sacrificial meals offered to false gods, to idols, because to share in a meal offered to such a false god is to have some kind of real present fellowship with demons which is obviously to participate in idolatry. Verse 21 of chapter 10, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. One commentator said to sit down at the table of the Lord is to receive fruit from him and through it to enter communion with him. Correspondingly, 
Anyone who takes part in pagan sacrificial meals enters into communion with demons. He says those two activities are totally incompatible. The point being is that the bread and the cup are signs, they are symbols, which signify present participation, present sharing in and enjoyment of the present benefits procured by Christ's body and his blood. A while back, I, when we were going through Philippians, I, I mentioned John Owen's book, Communion with the Triune God. And his definition of communion, I think, is very helpful God communicates of himself to us with our return to him that which he requires and accepts, and that flows from that union that we have with him by faith. So there's kind of three components to it. God, there's an interchange, a spiritual interchange that happens between us and God. God gives himself to us, and we, in response, give back to him that which he accepts and and, and um and uh, requires. And we do that all on the basis of faith through our union with him. So all that happens because of faith in him. And that is what is happening at the Lord's table. At the Lord's table, there is a, a mutual giving and receiving grounded in the gospel. The triune God gives and does and delights and is satisfied toward us as he always is. And on our part, we respond to and do and delight and are satisfied toward him. So sharing in the blood and body of Christ means spiritual nourishment is brought to our hearts by faith. It is a present participation in the present benefits of Christ's death for those properly partaking. To put it simply, the Lord's Supper is a common means of grace. It's a means of God's grace. If you put your faith in Christ... We already have union with Christ. We've been united to him on the basis of faith. We have been justified in Christ, and we have peace with God, Romans 5.1. The Lord's Supper, then, must be viewed as a means to water and to feed what we already possess. It does not convert. It does not operate apart from the faith of the person participating. The Lord's Supper then is a means it's sanctified, to sanctifying and strengthening the justified sinner. So it's not really that different in, in the way that it works than the word of God being ministered to our hearts or the means of grace that God gives us in the discipline of prayer. Again, that is a way that God's sanctifying grace is poured into, those are ways that our God's sanctifying grace is poured into our hearts from Christ himself. We hear the word of God preached like you are even now. You read it for yourself. You study it. You meditate on it. And what happens? God's grace is brought to your heart. You're strengthened. Your, your faith is increased. When you pray, you, you, your heart is brought into line with him and you, you understand his ways and, and you glory and then delight in those things in, fresh, in a fresh way. You're, you take heart and press on. The, the, those things are means of God's grace. And so it is with the Lord's table. This has been known since the early decades and acknowledged since the early decades of the Reformation as a spiritual presence or or a real presence view of the Lord's table. 
It's been affirmed across the board. Pado baptists Credo-Baptists, magisterial reformers like Calvin, and thus non-denominational country bumpkins as well. Transubstantiation is the official teaching of Roman Catholicism. And trans, that, that, um, that prefix means change, and substantiation means substance. And so the Roman Catholic teaches incorrectly that when the bread and the wine are blessed by the priest during the Mass, that that bread and wine, those physical elements, are somehow transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. That is not what we're saying. Martin Luther took issue with this view of the Lord's table, and his view was known as consubstantiation, meaning that uh, together and substantiation still meaning substance. And Luther argued that rather than changing completely, the substance of the bread and the wine sort of hover around the elements. <laughs> Not sure how that's meaningfully different. And that in that, uh, Jesus Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine, almost like water in a sponge is kind of soaked up. It's not, not the sponge, but it's like in the sponge or around it. Zwingli, we know Zwingli, if you're familiar with church history, was a contemporary of Luther, and he taught a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. He said that Christ commanded us to do this in remembrance of him, and that's all it is. It is an act of remembrance. And then Calvin in Geneva comes along and he says and takes what um, would be known as the Lord's Supper view, the spiritual presence view. And he took serious issue with the Roman Catholic view. And at the same time, he did not agree with Luther, which makes sense. And on the flip side, he thought Zwingli's view didn't go far enough. And so the Lord's Supper, he says, is more than a memory. It is symbolic for sure. Nothing changes with the physical elements. But the symbols do more than simply represent. They actually bring us into an enjoyment of the presence of Jesus Christ and his benefits by faith, spiritually. Yes, Christ's human body is locally present in heaven, but Calvin said it does not need to descend in order to, for believers to partake of it. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit makes true fellowship possible here and now. So the Holy Spirit is Christ's spirit. We see that. He lifts the eyes of our hearts to heaven to look upon Christ. And those who eat the bread and drink the cup by faith are also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, actually spiritually strengthened and nourished by his body and his blood. And this spiritual presence understanding is I believe the proper view that accounts for all the biblical evidence. If you just look at chapter 11, Zwingli's view makes sense. But if you look at chapter 10 and chapter 11, it can't just be memorial. And our doctrinal statement affirms that. We teach, whereas the elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, participation in the Lord's Supper is nevertheless an actual communion with the risen Christ who indwells every believer and so is present fellowshipping with his people. That's in our doctrinal statement. You say, well, okay, I kind of understand what you're saying, but how does it work? How does that work? How does that which resides in heaven come to us here, our weary souls here on earth? And the answer is, to that question is through God the Holy Spirit. 
through God the Holy Spirit. So turn with me to John 16 for a moment. John chapter 16. I'm going to try and do my very best to explain the unexplainable. Because I think that God has given us a clear understanding, and this is in view as these men in the church history, throughout church history, have hammered out and debated this, and a lot of ink has been spilled on this topic. But here in John 16, Jesus is in the upper room where he first institutes the Lord's table, celebrating the Passover with the disciples, and he gives them his kind of final instruction in, in teaching here in these verses. And in verses um, 15 and 16, or excuse me, uh, 13 to 15, excuse me, 13 to 15, he points out several, Jesus does, important ministries that the Holy Spirit would uh, carry out. He says, but when he, verse 13, the Spirit of truth comes, he, the Spirit, will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he, is t- he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit guides the believer's heart, he says, first off, into all the truth. To see it, he helps us savor it, to believe it, and to rest in it. Notice here, um, this is just an, a little aside. He doesn't, the Spirit doesn't speak contrary to Christ. Um, he only speaks in lockstep with the Father and the Son. So those who claim that the Spirit told them this and that and the other thing, and that thing doesn't comport with what the Son and the Father have said, clearly is not of the Spirit. He would never say something contrary to the Son or the Father. That's an aside. Secondly, he points out that one of the essential ministries of the Holy Spirit is to take what is the common possession of the Father and the Son and to reveal it to you and to me. In verse 14, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and disclose it to you. So the Spirit is the divine agent, the divine vehicle through which God's grace and his knowledge and his wisdom and benefits and even his spiritual presence are ushered into our hearts and enjoyed by us. And the Holy Spirit then is also the divine vehicle through whom we are able to respond back to God that and give him what he requires and accepts. That's how that interchange takes place. And those spiritual blessings granted to us by our Heavenly Father, purchased for us by the Son, are then delivered to us by the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 14 and 15 are talking about. And again, we see this with prayer and the Word. The Spirit, what does it do, Romans 8? It helps us to pray. The Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us to believe and to understand the Word of God. Sanctify them by your Word. Your Word is truth. And how does that happen? Well, if you look back at John 14 and verse 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. We understand that that apart from the work of the Spirit, the Word of God, while we may understand its bare contents, we do not trust in it. We certainly cannot believe it and, and lay our lives down for it. 
And so we see that the work of the Holy Spirit is, is vital to the means of grace in prayer, the means of grace of the Word, and it's also similarly true for the means of grace that it comes to us through the Lord's table, the elements. It is the Spirit who ushers into our hearts all the spiritual benefits of Christ's body and blood, which are symbolized in the cup and the bread, nourishing our souls, strengthening our faith. This communion, this enjoyment of Christ, we said doesn't happen apart from faith. It happens through faith. It is not realized by our own will and our own power. It is realized by the Spirit's will and the Spirit's power. And as certain as you and I receive with our hand and taste with our mouth the bread and the cup, so certainly we are being renewed and strengthened with fresh grace by Christ himself through his spirit. It is a sanctifying ordinance, not justifying, sanctifying. A couple of points of application. One theological, one practical. First, Our spiritual presence view of the Lord's table as a means of grace presupposes and really necessitates the scriptures as the primary means of grace. Say that again. Our our view of the Lord's table as a means of grace presupposes and really necessitates the scriptures as the primary means of grace. It is the word of God read, studied, meditated on that causes us to grow up into spiritual maturity. We understand that. And the Lord's Supper was given to the church by the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it is the written word of God that discloses that to us and explains its meaning. So I guess what I'm saying is the Lord's table doesn't operate as an island unto itself. Though it is a visible sermon, it does not preach itself. It needs to be explained from the word of God. So its spiritual power is tied very tightly to the word of God written down. So when we explain the Lord's table from the scriptures, the spirit of God takes all those wonderful riches of Christ and sort of ushers them into our hearts, enlarging and strengthening our faith. Consequently, when the Lord's table is uh, celebrated, we should probably be accompanying that by the reading and the preaching of God's word. So that's a kind of a theological implication. Secondly, on a practical level, not that that's not practical, but that's, you understand what I'm saying. On a practical level, since the Lord's table is a means of grace for God's people to be received by faith, we probably should give some serious thought to the frequency with which we partake of it. I mean, how often should the church take the Lord's Supper? Honestly, the scriptures don't give us a hard and fast um, number of times or frequencies. Um, We've typically done that once a month on average. Some churches do that once a quarter, some every other week, some every week. Maybe you've been a part of a church that does it every week, participates every week. It's my growing conviction, based in large part on my study over the last several weeks, that more frequently is better than less. And some people might argue, well, if we celebrate the Lord's table twice a month or every Sunday, we'd run the risk of trivializing the table. And, and, and yeah, I understand that. I hear that concern. But prayer is a means of grace. 
And taking in God's word is a means of grace. And I don't know anyone who seriously argues we should pray less or take in the word less. Alongside that thought, when the church does celebrate the Lord's table, if you are a church member in good standing, you should be participating in the Lord's table. The Lord's table is not meant to be something we constantly excommunicate ourselves from because we didn't read our Bibles as much as we ought, or we didn't pray as fervently as we thought we should, or we wrestled with the same sinful temptations more vigorously than we would have hoped for in the week before. I mean, that is to be tyrannized by the law of God again. Michael Horton says it right. He says, the supper is a means of grace for the weak, not a reward for the strong. And because it is a means of grace for believing sinners, while we certainly want to approach the Lord's table with reverence and to be circumspect and to make sure our relationships with others in the church are in good standing, joy and hope have an equally important seat at the table. And we should understand that we want to be a part of this every time we can because we are communing with the risen Christ and we are receiving, as it were, a foretaste of God's goodness being helped along as weary pilgrims in a foreign land. And I don't think anybody needs less of that. I certainly don't. I need that encouragement all the time. So the Lord's table is a means of grace for weak and struggling souls who need to be strengthened. And through our participation, you and I then are reminded that our sins have been forgiven. We're reminded that we belong to Christ and he belongs to us and that we are eagerly awaiting that future day when we will see him face to face. That's that future anticipating of what is to come. And so I think uh, we, need, we need to evaluate our participation, both individually and as a church, with the frequency with which we engage in the Lord's table, because there is a real communion that happens, not only with Christ, but as we said before, and we'll emphasize this next week as we look at the final verses, we have communion with one another. We are, as Paul says back in chapter 10 of Romans, in verse 17, Right after he asked this question, he says, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. He's talking about the unity that we share in Christ and the oneness that exists there, and that is because of our union with Christ. So this has been incredibly helpful for me to think through these things, to meditate on them, and to stand on the shoulders. I mean, it's incredible how consistent the testimony is across you know, church history since the Reformation. All different traditions affirm this view. And, uh, and we need to take it to heart. We need to understand the past dynamic for sure. The memorial component is important. But there is a present real fellowship spiritually that happens through the Lord's table by faith. And that is something that we should come to with joy and expectation and expecting encouragement in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the world alone. We're reminded of the Great Commission where Jesus says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Or the writer of Hebrews, speaking of Christ, it says, He will neither, you will neither leave us nor forsake us. 
And we're reminded of that in a very particular and a very tangible way at the Lord's table, that you are with us and that we belong to you and you belong to us, which is truly amazing. Lord, help us to come to that Lord's table when we do with expectation and hope. Lord, help us to understand it more clearly. Help us to glory in it. And may it remind us that we, we belong to you. Our sins are forgiven. And Lord, if there's any here this morning who have not repented and truly surrendered their lives to follow you by faith, we pray that they would know that justifying grace and then through the work of the Spirit would know the sanctifying grace and being transformed from one degree of glory to the next until we see you face to face. Lord, until then, help us to press on, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.